Welcome back to the Meaningful Media Podcast, here in front of a live audience at the Habas Cafe. Here at Habas Media Group, we explore meaningful media. Meaningful media is media that's trusted, engaging, and influential. News media consistently scores highest in all three of these categories. It's clear there's an immense appetite for news, shows this time and again. There's also a weariness and an increasing cynicism around misinformation. This is opening the over window for platforms like Twitter to claim to be a new kind of democratizing. Navigating these changes, redefining and evolving the news format for journalists who are not only protected, but growing the fourth estate for innovation. We have three of these leaders, Roz Aikens. Roz Aikens is the analysis editor for BBC News. A decade ago, Roz developed outside source on BBC News, where it pioneered a new format that gave viewers in-depth daily analysis with a feeling of being online in a broadcast medium. Ross is also the founder of the 5050 Project, started in the BBC newsroom in 2017 to support overt representation for BBC's journalists. Introducing Carmela Boykin, TikTok producer of the Washington Post. Carmela writes, shoots, and edits news TikToks, the innovating iterate on TikTok styles to deliver the news. Her most viral video on a controversial Mexican train line garnered over 3 million views. Carmela also developed the Post's Giphy account, where she reached a view count of 15 million. Before joining the post, she worked as a local TV reporter in Rochester, New York. And introducing Joy Marie McKenzie, Editor-in-Chief, Life Division, Business Insider. Joy Marie oversees entertainment, lifestyle, digital culture, health, parenting, and relationships coverage across three continents. Previously, she worked for nearly a decade in network news at NBC and ABC, along with Good Morning America, where she earned an Emmy Award. She's the author of The Engagement Game, published to Chris Clipplane in 2017. Let's have a warm cafe welcome for our amazing guests. So let's start by finding out a little bit more about our guests in their own words. Roz, you've been described as the BBC's explainer-in-chief. Your new role is a BBC commitment to partial journalism. Uh, yeah, certainly. And hi to all of you. It's very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess journalism takes lots of different forms. And you know, we're hearing that here in Cannes. We hear it when we come together as a journalism industry as well. And the, the, the strand of journalism I've always been interested in is, is explanation. How do you take a subject or it's a story or an issue and find ways of delivering that for your audience in a way that both informs them, but to a word we've already heard, engages them and keeps them watching. Because this might seem like a really obvious thing to say, but I started off on radio, I then moved into TV and now I make video. But in all three of those, if people aren't listening or watching, it doesn't make any difference what you're saying because they literally aren't consuming what you've got to say. So I was very interested in the dual challenge of how do I effectively explain subjects and stories that people I know are interested in and how do I do that in a way that makes them want to keep consuming the information. And that's an ever-evolving challenge, as I'm sure the three of us will reflect on, because what might have worked in 2013 when I launched Outside Source is not necessarily going to work in 2023. And what I'm doing now, which seems to be going reasonably well, may well not be working in a year or two's time. So there's a, a constant battle to continue to provide fair, comprehensive, impartial journalism, but in a form that is helpful. And this is a word I use a lot with my colleagues, making journalism that's helpful, that helps people guide the world we're in and also the information ecosystem we're in, because I think more and more we all need some help in just working out what to make of this information swirling around us. So, Jewelry, let's come to you next. You came to journalism through a, a blogging route. Uh, you launched a, a, a nightlife blog in Washington, D.C., Where's blogging gone? Is it all now Substack or did it just eat all of text media? 
I know. I um, that, that feels like a lifetime ago, but I think blogging is still, it's not all Substack. It's not all newsletters, um, but there's bits and pieces of it and everything. And so even for at Business Insider now, we still talk about blogging every single day because I think people really want to hear voice. They want to hear a point of view. And that's one of the ways that we cut through the noise. Ross spoke about like, how do you get people engaged? Well, they kind of want to hear what you what you think. Um, and we have to do that very carefully as journalists. We often, you know, we're taught in J school, actually don't share what you think, try to be um, as impartial as you can, but that's not how people consume media anymore. And that's not what they expect. They hear opinions every day on TikTok or on Twitter or on Instagram. And so oftentimes we're trying to use that bloggy voice to cut through and to engage. Um, so I think we use it in, in every medium. It just may look a certain way or a different way. Interesting. I love the threads we're starting to establish on the, the need for analysis through to that connection. I'm wondering, and I confess I have a side interest in this, can you not have a, a voice, a distinctive voice that might work for the audience and be impartial? That's the key, right? I think that's the key when it comes to journalism. You, that's the goal. Um, oftentimes the lines are blurred, and I don't mind those blurred lines as long as we're, it's based in truth as much as whatever that means, right? As long as it's based in truth and fact as much as possible. But I think that's the challenge for, for modern journalists today. Well, I think that's a, a really nice moment to jump off into something that is uh, very distinct and uh, very personal, but is impartial. Um, Carmelo, were you working in a local newsroom and you saw the potential of TikTok? What did you see in that platform and why? And what are you doing with it? Oh, absolutely. When I was in Rochester, New York, I was a television reporter. I was a morning reporter. So I'd go to bed between like 5 and 6 p.m. to wake up between 1 and 2.30 in the morning because my shift started at 3.30 in the morning. And when you have a 3.30 a.m. shift and no one's around, you have a lot of time to think to yourself about your life and your life choices. And... <laughs> Even though every morning I was standing up and talking on television like, good morning, I'm live from this scene. Look behind me. This is what's, this is what's going on. What I would do when I would go home is I'd go on TikTok. I'd look on TikTok. I would watch YouTube videos. And so I'd be like, okay, well, how can I be making what I actually want to watch? And so when I saw the Washington Post had a TikTok account, I was like, I have to be part of this. They're hiring. I want to join. And I did. Right. Amazing. So let's now open the discussion up. And let's talk about how news organizations are evolving. How hard is it for news organizations to let go of traditional formats? Should they? Do they need to? Ross, we're going to come to you first on this. Look, I think there's always a challenge here in that every senior news leader in the world would fully accept that their newsrooms need to change. I don't think I, I ever, haven't heard for years anyone suggesting that's not the case. The, the calculation we're all making is the speed at which you not just create something new, but that you walk away from what you've, the, what you've been doing for a long time. And I think the BBC, quite understandably, is to some degree is trying to ride two horses and that we're trying to lean very hard into, for example, the BBC's just hired a big new TikTok team, so very much committed to that platform. But at the same time, some of the television formats and radio formats that have had millions of viewers and listeners for decades, I don't think anyone's suggesting we just stop doing those. And so the challenge, because of course, for the BBC and for, for all of us, resources aren't finite. The, the strategic decisions for people way above my pay grade is how do you maneuver your resources to both cater for more traditional formats and more traditional audiences, which matter a huge amount, while also leaving sufficient resources to, to both create formats that work for particularly younger audiences right now. But of course, we're all looking several years down the track as well. And to be successful in 2025, we're probably going to need to start thinking about what we want to do in 2025 
now. And so there's that tension. And I'm not, to some extent, I don't know how you two feel about it, but I feel like it's a, an inevitable tension, not necessarily a bad one. Yeah, I think media has been is dying is a, is a refrain that we've heard since I started journalism and yet it's still here, right? And so there is this need for media to evolve, to speak to different audiences where they are. We're talking about TikTok every day, whether it's finding sources, finding stories. So we have to, to change. We have to learn these platforms. As an elder millennial, I have to admit, I am- Is that a particular subset? The, old, the older ones. I, I, but, look, I'm, I'm, I'm out of myself as an elder millennial as well here, so- as an elder, I don't think I qualify. Come on, I, and I'll chat lightly here. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I, I won't ask. Um, but I'm the late adopter to TikTok, right? And that puts me at a disadvantage to today's reporting, right? Because that's where a lot of story, um, stories are born, or that's people having interesting stories. And so I think we have to evolve as journalists with our skill set, but also in terms of the newsroom structure, whether it's building new teams or building new positions. Right now, we built a new internal position that we're looking for called an anchor sexy name, um, but it's a person, a, a very senior journalist thinker who can take what's happening in the news and also infuse that voice, that impartiality, but voice and really do um, sort of high level analysis because that's where we see our readers are more interested in. Um, and so, yeah, we're continually thinking about ways to evolve, whether it's internally or, or looking at different platforms to either get stories or, or service our stories. And as you said, Ross, I think one company... Things that worked in the past aren't necessarily working now. And I think the danger of legacy media, particularly not evolving, is you're losing audience and you're losing your grasp. And so what's really what I've really enjoyed about working on our TikTok is when we publish content, we get instant feedback from our audience. I appreciated this. I didn't. I have questions about this. Can you do more about this? And I think that builds a really strong trust. So that way, when we need to ask our audience for something like, hey, did you subscribe to the post? Can you fill out the survey for us so we can have information to prove that what we do like also has value in addition to the views and they'll respond to it really well because we have that relationship. So I think it's really important. One of the things that we're wrestling with, I wonder if you two are as well, is that I guess if I go back a few years, I would think of my duties being some television anchoring, some radio anchoring and some digital work. And I used to kind of see the digital work as you know, one kind of coherent entity. And like, especially in the last two or three years, as I've been making more and more video, it's, you know, I'll watch a, a, a video and if I just post the same video across five or six different digital platforms, the performance will vary wildly. And so we've started to think about, well, okay, we need to be making a different type of video for here, for here, for here, which might sound logical, but actually if you've got a lot of different digital outlets, whether BBC platform or off BBC platform, you could end up making, you know, before you know it, you're making an awful lot of versions of one piece of work and that's quite resource intensive. Yeah, it's something that we're, um, that we, recently made a solve for um, because we know TikTok is where young people are. Gen Z is on TikTok. We want to speak to them. We want them to be our readers and converse with them every day. And it's interesting what, really quick, an aside, what you said about comments, because I remember a world in which we had comments on site, on our platforms, and then we hated them. And then we said, oh, we have to moderate them. And this is a lot of work for not a lot of gain. And so we took comments off and now they're back again on social platforms. So I thought that was interesting. So yeah, in terms of what our priorities are, we want people to come to site. That's the priority. We don't want them on TikTok, quite frankly. We don't want them on Facebook because that's not how we can monetize. So we want to get them on site, but we do still see the need to meet readers where they are. And so what we what we sort of try to do is, you know, we want to prevent burnout for journalists, but also have them um, pr produce these things. So we said, okay, take an hour of your day. If you're on a reporting trip to Iceland, can you take an hour of that reporting trip to do a TikTok? You're already taking video. You're already taking photos. You're already taking selfies. 
So just take an hour of that reporting trip to then produce a TikTok native to the platform because when it's native to the platform, then it speaks a different way and it engages in a certain way. And so that's the challenge for us as media leaders. Um, but we're, we're creating workarounds. Mm-hmm. And similar for us, um, I started out as my, my job as TikTok producer, right? But one of my big things when I came on was the importance of expanding the different platforms because vertical video is on a bunch of different sites. And we've expanded to YouTube Shorts and we're on Reels. And TikTok is very, it's a really closed community. So there are a lot of trends on TikTok that when you use them, they blow up on TikTok. But if we post that on YouTube Shorts, the audience is like, what is this? Like, I don't even get it. So one of the challenges that I've been facing and that I'm kind of working on now is how do I make content, like you said, that matches all three platforms? And so honestly, by just making like skit skit content instead of trend-based content, that's been really valuable. And even though certain TikToks perform better or certain certain shorts perform better, um, it works a lot better when I make universal content. So that's interesting. I've got a, I've got a different route, which is to be... I'm a bit stricter now about I'm making this video for this place. So I'm making this video and the priority is the BBC News app and the BBC website and the considerations for that trump everything. Or I might be, I'm making it for BBC iPlayer and the considerations for that trump everything or whatever the example might be. And then if it does work elsewhere, so that's okay. Because I've, I mean, it sounds like you're doing, you're having more success with it than, than I have. But I found that if I try and hit all of them with one video, it's it's because it, they're just totally different audiences and the platforms behave in d- different ways and they react to tone in a different way as well. And mm-hmm. um, sometimes it's been easy just to go, right, this one is for this place. I think that's what's so compelling about your work, Carmelo. Like you, you understand TikTok, you understand like how content is produced on there, but you know, what goes viral. And there's a, there's a very specific stylistic element to these platforms. So we talk about the kind of algorithm, the optimization element, but they are in themselves developing a, a distinct voice, a distinct way of presenting content on those platforms and i wonder there is a question here is this a production challenge or is it for the for the journalist you mentioned um having a uh, the journalist having a you know their tiktok if they're reporting and have got it in their pocket what is this is this is this a production or is the, the individual journalist just being asked to do more and more work and find their voice across these platforms yeah i think i hate to think about algorithms when i think about them i think about what's being excluded mm-hmm. what's not being surfaced so i think it's it's almost a danger for journal for journalists, I think, in my opinion, to to worry about algorithms and w- because you can find yourself in a trap, mm-hmm. right? The reality is our focus is on good storytelling, quality storytelling, finding good stories, and so that's almost a secondary thought for me. Um, or a different teams thought, you know, we have a search and strategy team that helps us um, think about what to put on Google Discover, what performs better on Google Discover versus Facebook versus TikTok. Um, but as journalists, I think our core should be thinking, what's a good story? How can I tell this story best? And on which platform that might be? I'd, I'd love to talk to Carmela afterwards to think about how to target three at a time. That's fabulous. Um, but for me, it's almost a distraction because you can find yourself going down a wormhole of trying to figure that out when that's not really your job, right? I agree with that in the sense of, especially when I first started, when you first start any job, right, you're like, I want to prove myself. I want to make sure that like everyone knows that I can do what I can do. Um, but man, when you're just chasing trends as a journalist, it's exhausting because you can't do that. On TikTok, the trends move so quickly, right? A trend lasts a week. If you post it two and three weeks later, it better be good or else you're off trend. Yeah. Um, so yeah, storytelling is the most important. But I also think a massive part of my job is 
telling that story in an engaging way, which really is storytelling. But how can I tell that in an engaging way for the Internet? So for me, that's like being quick and punchy because my videos, whether whatever platform they're on, like before me is going to be a dog and after me is going to be a cute baby. And so my news content had better be interesting and engaging to maintain the audience. And I think to your, to the original question, for me, it's, it is about journalism and production. So when I was developing our explainer video format, I had a hunch that this format could work, a different tone, a different duration, uh, different type of storytelling to ones that uh, we might traditionally do. But it was, you know, it wasn't just a random guess, but at the same time, I wasn't sure if it mm. would work or not. And these videos started to go very viral almost two years after I first started working on them. And in the early days, we would be posting them and then I'd be pouring through the comments and you could see people going, you could tell the bits that people responded to and you could tell the bits or the whole videos that people were not engaging with. And so for me, that was production and journalism completely intertwining in that I was making something, then spending a lot of time looking at how it had been consumed and allowing that to influence the next thing that I made. And so while, of course, the story is completely central, for me, I was trying to develop, a, I was trying to get to a format or a, a product. And as such, the production dimension of it was, was quite central to what I was doing. Because in the end, if I wanted to deliver a different form of journalism, I was going to have to get involved in the the detail of the production, that makes yeah. sense. And you're letting your readers inform you, which is what we should all be doing, right? Because I think to your earlier point of no one's watching, if no one's listening, if no one's reading, then why are we doing it, right? Um, so you're that's different, I think, uh, and, and equally important, of course. And I think that leans into the challenge of legacy media evolving too. Because when you look at like a newscast, it's so easy to, it's not easy, but it's very formulaic to say, all right, this is what our schedule is and we need all these stories in these different blocks we're going to do it we're going to cut to break it's going to be da 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 and we can just get it done and on social media it just like opens up a whole worm can of like these are all there we have the world is our oyster and it's really challenging to like make a formula which makes your life so much easier i used to have an editor who used to say like we're not making the case for change so that you just take one orthodoxy and then create a new one right so you do the big change and you go we're doing this new way and then everyone's like oh we have to do it this way now and like I think we have to, we've definitely, the BBC felt our way towards a more the kind of state of constant critiquing because I think that's what's required at the moment because you feel, you know, you're too, you're too busy patting yourself on the back going, hey, I think we've cracked this. The whole world moves on in about two months. True. I'm just really intrigued by it. In some ways, you all come from a, a kind of production background. Do you think that's helped with your success? Do you think that helps you understand You've all talked about the kind of engaging with the audience and sort of seeing this this feedback in real time, trends evolving. How's it help? I would say it's one of the most valuable things. It's one of the most valuable skills that I have. Knowing how to work with camera people and knowing how to work with pe the audio and behind the scenes and having those technical elements and being able to not only like explain to someone, okay, this is how you do it. Can you please shoot me this way? Um, it helps. But then also now I can like shoot to edit. When I'm like making content, I can say, okay, so I have to make sure that like my leg is this way and like my face is this way. So that way when I'm going to edit, it can just be quick and like go through it rather than kind of like lollygagging throughout the entire time being like, oh, this looks nice, maybe. And then when you edit it, it's, it's a long process. Yeah, I agree. Um, Roz and I were talking that we have a similar background. We both started in radio and that was my real, my first real job. After audio, playing. one of the best medium. Um, exactly. Um, and I agree. I think it helps you speak a certain language, right? Especially as a media manager, people want to know that you know what you're talking about. 
And how do you do that? It's like, okay, can you can you edit this way? I need B-roll this way. And when you're speaking the language of the of the person who's producing, I think it just helps uh, create that trust, and and then I can motivate them to to produce. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I came into the BBC a long time ago now, 2001, as a junior radio producer, and I loved it. I mm. absolutely loved being a a producer. I loved learning all of the detail of how we constructed this. And I liked the the combination of journalism and the more technical dimensions and frankly, the administrative dimensions as well, the getting everything organized so that it all lined up. I loved all of it. It really informed how I've gone about trying to develop different journalistic products for the BBC. And it also, not that I really needed to be told this, but if I was unsure when I did the job, it was like, you can't make good news without brilliant producers. And so it you know, I'm now a TV anchor or now a video presenter as well, but I never lose sight of the fact that I literally can't do anything without, I've got an incredible team of people who I work with and without them and without me trying to at least understand the work they do, we can't take what may or may not be a good idea and make it real without that dimension of the work. And so, you know, as I've gone on, I've, I'm a bit rusty compared with where I was when I was a full-time producer, but I'm still, you know, we quite frequently have conversations where we're like, okay, we'd like to create this thing. What are the practicalities of doing that? Is it realistic to do this? Let's work through the, the, the nuts and bolts of this. And um, I think if you don't pay attention to that, you're probably not going to make something, right? Yeah. And I started my journalism career during um, first recession. And so back then there was this all talk of journalists have to do everything. You have to know how to edit audio. You have to be comfortable on video. You have to be comfortable producing that video and editing that video. And, and by the way, can you create your own website? You have to have your own website. And then can you, it was, it was madness. I don't think, I don't hear that as much anymore, but I'm thankful for it because now I am prepared to step into those spaces. When we talk about media evolving, we talk, we have to talk about journalists evolving too. And so being comfortable in all of those spaces, whether it's audio, video, copy, text, all of that really matters. And I think it speaks to the longevity of longevity of all of us sitting up here. And Carmela, I know you're starting out a little bit, but um, it speaks to that where you can step into any space in journalism and, and be prepared for that. Yeah, that's what I did in my time in Rochester was, ma'am, you're doing this yourself. So good luck shooting, good luck editing. Go ahead, it's gonna be you. Um, and even though I was there for a brief time, yeah, and less than you guys, but it helped a lot. And it helps, I see that today when I'm doing my work even on TikTok. So follow-up question on that. Is there a danger that perhaps the, well, the medium is the message, but the medium is becoming too much the message or is that just the natural evolution of how media happens? How do you mean? So we talk about making content for these different platforms. Uh, we talk about the need to customize it. Um, do we over-customize it? But I feel like it just comes back to the, the first problem I was describing, which is if we're journalists, because... We believe in the importance of explaining the world around us and telling people what's happening in our world and whatever uh, specialism within journalism we're doing. You've got to engage with the nature of the, the way your work is distributed. You've got to engage with the different ways your audience would like that information given to you. And so I don't think the media becomes the message. The message is still the story, but the media is, needless to say, fundamental to how you deliver the story. And so... Um, I'm not busy in the middle of my videos talking about, you know, all the strategic calculations behind why I'm doing it. I'm just doing it and hoping that people, people like it. But of course, to be able to make it, the team 
who make it with me, we need to pay close attention to these things. Yeah, that's why it's so impressive what you're doing and mm. being able to speak to different platforms all at once. Like, you have to talk after this. <laughs> but um, also just on site, like if you're creating um, uh, a story just on a you know regular old website, you have to be concerned about readability. You have to be concerned about paragraph sizes. Are they too big? How will it look on mobile? Will it will it fill, fill up your your smartphone? You have to be concerned about oh, do we do we use bullets here or is it a numbered list? Or maybe it's a GIF or a video embed. You think about all of those things. So I think understanding the medium in which you're working is wholly important so that readers can really read and consume and continue to, continue to scroll or continue to watch or listen. That's important. So I think media isn't the message, but if you're not a journalist paying attention to it and utilizing all the ways and spaces that you can, then you're sort of missing out. Am I allowed to resweet? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say, yeah, I think it's just, uh, paying attention to where audiences are. You got to, as a journalist, like, we have to have the lay of the land. We have to understand what's going on. The depth. And then when platforms change, I'm going to change with that too because I want to stay relevant. I love that. <clears throat> so let, let's talk about connecting with audiences, right, and understanding where they're going. Uh, you talked about, like, reading comments and understanding, you know, there's, there's all these metrics. There's it's about the algorithm. How do you connect with your audience? How do you understand what they need, what they want? And is there an element of sort of additional pressure there? I think it's by being a human being. Cool. I think the biggest thing that I struggled with in traditional, for me, in traditional journalism was I felt like I couldn't be myself. I felt like I had to be a buttoned up version of Carmela. And I think that really was conveyed to the audience. I, what I really like about my job now and what I love about like the new platforms is I can like, I'm a dancey person. I can dance in my content. I can talk to the audience like I would talk to a friend and like I would want to be talked to. So I can confirm I can't dance in my content. But you can DJ. You could. I that's mean, true. That's true. So I can, yeah, I can provide the music you, you can dance. Most important part, arguably. <laughs> uh, I think for me, um, and even I'm going through this myself. So, you know, I started off as a blogger um, and a lot of that was branding, how I presented myself outside of the content because people have to believe in you so that what you're saying, um, they can receive it. And so for a while, I overshared on the social platforms available to me then, dating myself. But back then it was Facebook. I think maybe Twitter started in the middle of that. Um, so this was a while ago. Um, and now, <laughs> don't say anything bad. <laughs> but now um, we are having conversations with journalists about how to brand yourself so that not only are people coming to your content and, and finding, finding you and want to engage with you more, um, but doing that in a smart way so that you don't overshare or burn out. Um, so, for instance, a lot of the content that I oversee is lifestyle, beauty, travel. So people want first-person storytelling in that. They want to see you try on that lipstick. They want to see you go to ice and they want to see you experience, you know, Taylor Swift's uh, era's tour. Um, and with that, you're sharing a lot of yourself, but you have to do it in a way that's careful and comfortable. So after oversharing back in my early days, I really haven't gotten to a Place where I'm comfortable sharing a lot now, which is why I'm a late adopter to TikTok. My friend is like, "You're going to can. You better make a reel." I still have not done that. Um, and there's so still time. There's still yeah. time, but I think it's um, getting journalists to understand that branding is important for them because it helps. It does help the storytelling, and it helps people connect to your stories even more. But it's a challenge. So I had, a, I guess, a different challenge because at the BBC, quite rightly, there are lots of rules about make sure our journalism is fair and impartial and accurate and all the things that uh, we believe are the strengths of our journalism. But that means that how 
individuals express themselves, you're expressing yourself within within those confines. And back in 2019, when I was thinking about this explainer format, one of the things I was observing was that people who were giving a lot of themselves, their opinions, their experiences, were, were making hay, right? They were doing very well. And I was thinking, well, how can I compete in the digital arena when I'm, I can't quite do some of the things that you're describing? And so I had this idea, which was that, well, what about if I can assemble some facts and analysis that are so helpful and so um, useful and hopefully uh, engaging and arresting in, in different ways, that that kind of becomes the thing that draws people in. And I'm going to make a feature of the fact that I'm not bringing anything of it myself to it. So I decided to start delivering my videos always exactly the same way, with exactly the same tone and exactly the same pace. And it was partly just because I was like, well, maybe I can let the, the potency of the facts, the potency of the information I've got be the star of, be the, star of the show. And then people started to notice and it became slightly a thing that I was always delivering these videos the, the same way. But it was really slightly lucky, really, because I was mainly just trying to think, how can I make a piece of digital content that's competitive in a world where everyone is doing what you're describing? And I can't quite do that. So I tried to make uh, what I was doing a point of difference and a, something that stood out in a different way. It was kind of an interesting uh, experiment, but I still can't do the, the kind of things that you're describing. What you're doing is is harder in a lot of ways, right? Because that is how people want to consume news. They want to know what you think. Um, so, yeah, I value that. I also value, like, the consistency, too. I, In a similar way, and not the exact same, but I, with the exception of McCann, I always wear, like, a black um, blazer and, like, a black turtleneck and black pants. And people have come to kind of expect that from me. Of, like, oh, like, Carmela's in uniform, like, playing all the different characters. Like, she might be playing Microsoft, but she's still Carmela in her uniform. And people really like that in the comments as well. So, yeah, yeah, that comment. I feel like this has brought us back around because we kind of talked about algorithms and seeing what's trending. And actually, part of the the secret of success here was you, your consistency, the way you deliver yourself. You, 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 you talked about sort of letting the facts speak for themselves, but you have a very particular presence, a very particular uh, delivery. I think all of you have a we used to call it a voice. We still do. Do you think? Do you think that is important? So voice is, is hugely important. I remember this is going back quite a way when I first signed up for Twitter and I was like, okay, well, like yeah. I was already a radio host at that point. So in one environment, I was very confident. I knew I definitely knew what my voice was on the radio. And I was like, how am I going to be in this place? And it took me, you know, a good while to kind of think, oh, okay, I can be like this. And similarly, when I was developing the videos, I was experimenting with tone and thinking, what? This isn't TV. So the rules that I had a voice on TV that I was quite comfortable with, but the voice on TV wasn't the voice I was trying to reach with video. And again, I said, spent kind of quite a long time experimenting and calibrating. And I don't know about you two, but it, it feels to me like it's not something that arrives overnight. Like it takes a good while to work out how to speak with an audience on a given platform. Absolutely. It's definitely a trial and error. And what's really nice, I mean, this can be like a gift and a curse, but what's really nice about now is there's so much content being put out there that you can try things and if they don't go well, they just go away and no one remembers. Like this isn't Walter Cronkite and like everyone in the world is like watching at the same time or in the US or whatever. Everyone is watching and if you make a mistake, everyone's watching. Oh my God, did you see? Whatever. Um, so yeah, if you make something and it's like doesn't feel authentic to you, you just don't do it again and no one's going to remember. And then when you hit it and you get the right voice and it does really well, everyone remembers that. So. 
Yeah. And I encourage journalists to play around with voice. Like I remember when I, I was first starting out, I was very bold and said whatever I wanted. It got burned a few times, got dragged a few times. Um, and then I said, okay, I have to refine this. Right. And so I think even, even current day, you may have something, you know, cute and, and voicey to say about Taylor Swift, but you might approach a, a story about the latest um, coronavirus. You know, they found something in the, the sewage. You might approach that very differently. So as a journalist by yourself, experiment and play around and see what works for you and, and see where you're comfortable in and, and see how different ways to tell the stories. But yeah, continue to experiment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I come like, I have a question for you guys. In your time, have you ever gotten like, dragged on the internet because of something that you posted and how did you respond to that yes or you <laughs> oh gosh do i want to tell this story you know I'll, I'll give a sanitized version because i don't want to hurt anyone's feelings since this is being recorded but yeah i, I had an assignment at, at a newsroom not my, not my current one of course and i did not want to write this story i knew i was not the right journalist for this story um, but it was a story that had to do with race. So I was the only black reporter in the newsroom at that time. And they said, you write it. And I was like, I'm not a race reporter. I don't know the nuances of this. Tried to avoid the assignment for days. The editor found me and, you know, I said, I said, I said okay, I'm going to report this out, right? Because if I report this out, it's not my opinion, not my voice. I can sort of re report this story out, which I did. And I thought it was really successful. The challenge was the headline, which we you talk about a lot. I I'm mostly concerned now on headlines and thumbnails because that's what the you know that's what the readers first see. Um, and the headline was not accurate to the reporting, and I got dragged for the headline. The story was great, and I said keep the story up because the story was great, and it sort of proved um, that I had done the story. But the headline got dragged. Snoop Dogg dragged me. You know, I was on his, it was, it was terrible for a couple of days and I sort of logged off. Um, I had great support from my media managers at the time and they said, yes, this is a great report. Don't worry about this. This will die down. And in about five days time, they were concerned about something else. It was painful, um, but I, I was confident in the report that I did. Um, and we ended up changing the headline and that's fine. That's, that's the beauty of digital. You don't, you don't have to stick to anything, um, but oof, it was painful. It was painful. I think, you know, turning off, turning it off for a little while when you're in the middle of it is, is advice I've been given a number of times and it's, and it's good advice. I think the, that ties into what you've been saying. If you feel like the work is good and you're in the middle of a storm and your editors are standing by you, then this is a sort of story I did the other day, which, you know, we, uh, we did a video about Manchester City's finances and some of the questions around Manchester City's finances. And... We released the Premier League, which Manchester City uh, have now won, uh, have a number of charges connected to uh, Manchester City's uh, finances. And we made a video about this. And when Manchester City won the league, we released the video. And, you know, football Twitter got reasonably animated about the video. And you're getting stuff coming in from all sides. Some people saying, this is great. Some people saying, why are you making this now? And so on and so forth. And... You know, the the piece had been through 101 checks. Like it was a solid bit of journalism. No one was actually taking issue with anything that we were saying. They were just saying, why have you made this video? And in the end, it's I basically just turned it off because I felt like it was a reasonable bit of work. My editors had been involved in it and were happy with it. 
No one seemed to be quibbling with the factual nature of it. The The issue was that we'd just placed a video in the middle of a maelstrom going on around the end of the football season in, in, in England. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact. It'd be quite, it can be quite intense at the time. What do you do? Um, whatever. Usually I'll send it similarly. Um, when the war in Ukraine, or yeah, the invasion of Ukraine began, um, we were getting a lot of comments of people saying we weren't reporting accurately. I just confirmed with our editors that like, this is the reporting that we have. Like, this is accurate from our reporters. Um, and yeah, I shut it off. And I was like, if there's something valuable in here, please tell me, but I'm not going to look because I don't need to be told that I'm, you know, a potato and not a good journalist because of someone's opinion. Yeah. And now we have resources in the newsroom that can help with doxing and, um, you know, if you need mental health services because you're getting dragged or going viral for a way that you don't like, we have that in the newsroom. And I think, you know, I, I hope every newsroom has that too. Yeah. One thing we've also started to do to try and preempt it, doesn't always work, is that when we finish a piece of work, particularly a video the same but digital, we'll obviously watch it for factual accuracy and all the things that you would normally do. We then watch it specifically imagining bad faith attacks. So we are looking at, could this be screen grabbed or mi misrepresented? So if you had the sound on and you were listening to my script, then it would definitely add up. But if you just screen grabbed it and misrepresented it, could that go viral? Now, you can't counter all bad faith actors because some people are going to do it anyway. But we've definitely caught a couple of things in the last couple of years where there was nothing factually incorrect about it at all. But there was a moment that could, if it was edited or, or, or taken out of context, look like something we weren't saying and we've adju we've adjusted it to, to reduce that risk and that's been that's now standard as we whenever we make a video about a controversial subject which is frequently uh we will watch it back with that specifically in mind hmm. that's and very it, smart is that you watching it back or do you have editors that do that are you critiquing your own work going hmm and these are what the mean comments would say about me or is that someone else uh, we're, we're a small team, so there's four of us, three brilliant producers and me, and we would all watch our videos multiple times before they're released, and they go through 101 other checks through more senior people as well. But we take it as our responsibility to watch it back with bad faith attacks in mind. I like that. So you're having to do a lot of work to safeguard the, the mental health of journalists and actually consider the impacts of putting your work out there on the platforms. Do the platforms have a responsibility here? What could they do? I mean, you could write whole books on that. Look, clearly there are laws in the lands where these social media platforms exist and, and they and everyone else within those countries need to, to stick to the laws. If someone's just going to be really mean to you, that's not against the law, but it doesn't make it very pleasant. So I think there are kind of two quite distinct things here, which is just the tenor of the conversation in which you're in, which is... I guess you can choose whether to be within it or not. And then there's things which cross over to, to abuse that's unacceptable. But they're, they're, they're two different things, I think. Yeah, I, I do think platforms have a responsibility, but also, you know, individuals do. Um, so you can choose to engage on those platforms or not. Um, and if you don't like how a platform is safeguarding you and your mental health, you know, get off of them. There are certain platforms that I just don't support. So I don't like what they're doing um, when it comes to privacy specifically. Um, even my children, for instance, I don't put their faces on social media intentionally because I want them to have a certain amount of privacy. I want them to have to choose to go on social platforms. So, you know, corporations do, but I think individuals can have 
can have some choice too. And to echo that, ethics are great. If companies, you know, have standards of ethics, that would be awesome. Um, but again, it is, does fall on us as journalists. And one of the big ways we've seen that is on Twitter. I'll talk to you very lightly. But Twitter, since it's gotten bought, um, the people on Twitter and the algorithms have changed a lot. And so content that we used to publish on Twitter about LGBTQIA plus that whole community and content about that usually would reach our core audience. But now, especially when my colleague Chris publishes content about that, um, the comment section just gets vicious, like yeah. very intense. So sometimes when we publish content about that, we'll publish, we'll publish it on Twitter. We'll put, put it on all of our other platforms. But we'll omit publishing it on Twitter because what's the value in that if we're just going to post something it gets retweeted by a bunch of people who are just acting in bad faith so case by case we are uh, coming up to time so we're going to have to start to wrap it up which i wish we could go longer this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion um so we like to finish every episode of the meaningful media podcast with your meaningful media fast five uh no pressure are you ready yes okay that was a gosh. It's enthusiastic, yes. So, John Marie, we're going to come to you first. What were you listening to, reading, or watching on your way to Canada? I was reading um, a book that hasn't come out yet, the sort of a preview copy of Bell Hooks, The Last Interview. Um, so, Bell Hooks, feminist scholar and icon, yeah. uh, passed away recently. And so, this is um, a book that editors have put together of her last interviews. And so I, I started that book just because I'm a, not because we're covering it, we may or may not, but I'm a, just a huge fan of Bell Hooks and she sort of opened my mind up to to different possibilities. So this was a, a pleasure read. Love it. That is a recommendation. What's the media you start your day with? Uh, Spotify, music. Yeah, I love music. Um, Janae Iko, Brandy, 90s R&B is my jam. Love it. What media do you turn to when you're looking to get inspired? media um i think music counts right oh. um so yeah i i often write with music so yeah it's music for me what's your guilty pleasure your media not guilty about this but it's real housewives oh. of every city except for dallas because that was not good embrace it you can have one media platform for the rest of your life which is in white i have no idea um media platform for the rest of my life um, I would rather like look at the, look at nature. To be perfectly honest, no. Um, or a beach. Yeah, yeah I've, get offline and touch. Grass. I think I exactly yeah. as the kids say. As the kids say because if we say it. Come yeah, on. okay, you'll say it. Okay, yeah, touch grass. I'd rather okay. look at the water. Yeah. Well, are you ready? I'm set. Okay. What were you listening to or reading or watching on your way to Gant? Uh, so on the way to Cannes, I think I was doing three things. I was sifting through the tracks that I was going to use, and I did the Group M. DJing yesterday, so I needed to make sure I was across all of that. I was reading a long report on the state of the advertising industry ahead of a, a session that I'm doing tomorrow. Super healthy. And I'm also quite a squash fan, and I was randomly watching some squash rallies on YouTube. Lovely. What, what's the so media? It's a bit of a mix. Yeah, I said it's a lot of media. What, what's the media you start your day with? Uh, so I would start my day by opening the BBC News app routinely within the first not very long of being awake just to see if anything has happened while I've been asleep. Like it's the first thing I would, I would do and I would read the main stories almost immediately. Uh, I used to then pretty much automatically open up Twitter and also then see what Twitter was offering me. I'm not finding Twitter as useful as a yeah. news in the morning as it 
uh, once was. It's a hell, it's, I've it's still a, open Twitter, but it's not rock solid part of my routine in the way that it used to be. Uh, but just checking the main headlines in the world via the BBC News app is is pretty pretty locked in. Frankly, yeah, BBC News app, Twitter useful if you just want a shot of cortisol in the in, in the morning. Um, so, what media do you turn to when you're looking to get inspired? So at the moment, I'm spending a lot of time seeing what individual content creators are doing in partly on TikTok, but particularly on YouTube, like explanatory journalism, explanatory factual is the area that I'm spending a lot of my time thinking about. And of course, there are big, brilliant news organizations around the world, Vox, Washington Post, New York Times, Economist, BBC, the list goes on, and I keep a very close eye on them. them. But there are now individuals who are producing really innovative, really interesting work on YouTube. And I watch a lot of them because I can learn plenty from them. I love that. What's your media guilty pleasure? Yeah, I don't know if this is, maybe this is more random than guilty. I listen to a Slate sport, sport podcast called Hang Up and Listen, which is almost universally about American sports. I'm quite a fan of sports generally, but know nothing about American sports. So I listen at length <laughs> to these discussions about baseball and basketball and NFL, despite really knowing very little about any of the people they're talking about. And I mention it because I think this is a kind of a significant endorsement of the quality of the podcast and the people on it that I kind of like listening to it, even though 70, 80% of it, I don't have the reference points. Funny. So you've got one media platform for the rest of your life. Which you know what I'm going to say here, the BBC, because of course we make all sorts of programs, to music, to factual, to news, to comedy, to drama, it's all there. So if I had to have one, I'd pick us. I've heard of the BBC, so I'm going to you know, check that out. Um, Carmela, can you bring us home? Yes, I can. Okay, let's go. What were you listening to, reading or watching on your way to camp? I was listening to Beyonce's Renaissance album on repeat. That was a long flight and I listened to the album like three times. Wow. It was great. Um, what's the media you start your day with? The Washington Post app, the top stories. It's not necessarily the healthiest thing. And even though I know our company probably wants people to do that, I don't recommend that because it's a little stressful in the morning. Maybe like after coffee, but that's how I start. You guys are showing off. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I do it partly because I'm interested in the news, but it's also partly selfish because if something has happened, I know it's going to influence what I'm going to be doing for the next 12, 15 hours. So I guess it's, it's partly practical and partly because I want to learn about things. Yeah. I have so, to start breaking down the characters in this drink. Check, checking in on the breaking news, but also uh, your own newsroom a little bit. Absolutely. Um, so what media do you turn to when you're looking to get inspired? I love to watch. There's a YouTube creator, Casey Neistat. He's like huge. He's my favorite creator of all time. Yeah. And whenever I feel like I don't know what to do, I'll just watch a Casey Neistat video of him like in New York City having a good time. Um, and his fast-paced editing just like kind of sparks in my brain and helps with the newest content, which is a little surprising. Love that. Interesting. What's your media guilty pleasure? Ooh. There's a podcast I love called Normal Gossip. I love hearing about gossip that's not going to harm me. Another great recommendation. You can have one media platform for the rest of your life, which is it and why? Books. <laughs> Books. Genuinely, because... You know, we actually get that a fair bit. Yeah. And your brain, it's just like reading... Once I've... I find if I don't read a lot, then my like attention span gets so short from being on social all the time. So get rid of the social media. Yeah, long form content, reading long form content, like exercising that, that mental muscle. Yeah. Um, well, we want to thank you so much for being part of today. We have had a fantastic uh, live, uh, fantastic panel joining us in front of this live audience in the Havas Cafe. I want to say a big Havas Cafe uh, thank you to... Uh, Roz Atkins, analysis editor, BBC, BBC News, Carmela Boykin, TikTok producer of the Washington Post, 
and Joy Marie McKenzie, Editor-in-Chief at the Life Division in Business Insider. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Thank you. Good luck for having us.